The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me is political editor Pat Leahy. Pat, we're going to try something a little bit different today. Risky, Hugh, but let's go for it. So this is the first of what may be more than one, maybe two, may even be three. We're not sure as we embark upon this uh, process, Pat. But we are aiming to tell the story of the life and the political career as Taoiseach of Bertie Ahern. Yes, let us set no limits upon ourselves, uh, Hugh. But uh, obviously we don't still want to be going by Christmas. So listen, uh, listeners may ask why. They may feel Bertie Ahern, we know all about Bertie Ahern. Uh, what else do we need to know about him? Sure, maybe they're right, you know, and I suppose we'll we'll find out as we go along. I thought it was worthwhile to go back and uh, and and have a look at the career of Bertie Hearn, not least. And this idea came to me a couple of months ago when we first started discussing it here. And uh, Bertie had made a bit of a re-entry into uh, public life. Not that he had been you know, hidden in public life. But he was suddenly prominent again around about the time of the uh, uh, of the Good Friday, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which is, you know, one of his great monuments um, uh, uh, of, of his political career along with uh, many other people. And there was also all this uh, speculation that he was going to run for the park because he was readmitted as a member of Fianna Fáil, which organisation had been outside for, oh, more than a decade, certainly. And uh, so there was all this speculation about whether he was going to run for the presidency. Speculation which, I mean, people in Fianna Fáil, certainly when I asked them about it, knocked it down. But Bertie himself was, I think, kind of content to let it out there and maybe see what the, uh, see what the reaction was. So anyway, between the 25th anniversary, the new... Prominence, uh, the, the prominence of, of, of Bertie in national debate around that time and the whole presidency rumours, we thought it would be a good idea to go back and try and tell the story of his, 
his time as uh, as leader of Fianna Fáil and as teacher. I, I think there's something I would add to that, which is it, we're 15, not more than 15 years on now from the end of his his position at the pinnacle of Irish politics, and I think that's sometimes a good time to look at to look at significant figures because there's a period, and we definitely saw it with Bertie Ahern, we saw it with his near contemporary Tony Blair as well, where they're just entirely out of fashion and people think they know everything they know about them and they tend to be quite negative about them and they tend not perhaps to look at them in the full and there is something about there is a benefit of of historical remove to have a look again yeah i think there's a lot in that to be honest and it also gives us the opportunity i suppose because he resigned just as the crash was beginning to make itself felt i mean really the 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 April of 2008 was the very eve of uh, of the crash. And for a long time, his legacy was completely overshadowed by that. And while it's very clearly an important part of the story of Bertie Ahern's leadership of his party and of the country, it's not all there is to it. And it seems to me that there is, I, I, and I suppose his... His recent prominence in, in, in public debate uh, isn't just about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I think it's also because maybe the toxicity that appended itself to his reputation. And there was real anger among lots of people personally directed at uh, Bertie Ahern. I, I, I think that that is probably in the rear view mirror now. And while there are still a lot of people with, he's still quite a polarising figure. I mean, he's also a very interesting figure for lots of reasons that we'll go on to discuss, but he's also quite a polarising figure. There's some people who will never forgive him and maybe never forgive his uh, party for their uh, for their role in the crash. But however way you cut it, his period, the start of it, right the way through to the end of it, was absolutely pivotal in the remaking of Irish politics that we have seen in the subsequent period and what we've often uh, talked about here. He really was, the career of Bertie Hearn really was that that bridge between the sort of two and a half party politics and the sort of state that we had for so long in this country and the very different place that has emerged in the last 15 years. So uh, I, I think in examining his career and the sort of forces and dynamics that played around it, particularly towards the latter end of it, perhaps, maybe we get a little bit of a better and, understanding and as to I, how we got I here. that, I think, is the real attraction of it, isn't it? It's not so much the individual, interestingly, though, though he may be. It's because it's a story of modern Irish politics and how it came to be, how we, ultimately, how we came to be, where, exactly where, how, where, where we are today with that. How did we get here? He's a very big part of that story. So let's launch into that. And I think viewers will be delighted um, to know that we're not going back to the 1950s and the, the infant Bartholomew O'Hearn in swaddling clothes as he, as he comes home to Drumcondor for the first time. We're actually going straight into the political maelstrom and one of the key moments of the modern Irish political history, which was in 1994. Cast your minds back. Those, those of our listeners who are old enough to, re- to remember, it, Ireland beat Italy in giant stadium. River dance was shown for the first time at the Eurovision. Kurt Cobain died. Oasis had their first album. And actually, it probably most relevant to our story, John Smith, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, died and Tony Blair became leader of that party. And Bertie Ahern, towards the end of 1994, was getting ready for power. So... There had been a uh, a coalition between Fianna Fáil and Labour, which um, came into power after a disastrous election. I mean, it, again, you know, just these numbers will tell you how different 
Irish politics was then uh, from from now. Um, Fianna Fáil had a disastrous election after the uh, resignation of Charles uh, Charlie Hahi, basically taken out by the Albert Reynolds faction in Fianna Fáil. Um, the previous coalition between Fianna Fáil and the PDs collapses in the autumn of 1994. There's an election which is widely perceived as the greatest disaster ever to befall Fianna Fáil, in which they win 68 seats. And uh, this is the worst performance that Fianna Fáil has had since the 1930s. After that election, Albert Reynolds does a deal with uh, with Dick Spring. And the Labour Party have had uh, what was became known as the Spring Tide uh, election in 1992. They gained 33 seats. Uh, they won on nearly 20% of the vote, by far the greatest uh, result in Labour's history. But they do a coalition deal with Fianna Fáil. So in 1994, this coalition collapses over, and we won't go into the high roads and by roads of the Byzantine story of how that coalition uh, collapsed. Suffice to say, it uh, it was over a row about the appointment of uh, the president of the High Court, who at that time was the Attorney General, Harry Whelahan, uh, in that that was what broke it. And uh, because he, as Attorney General, had presided over a lengthy delay in the processing of an extradition warrant for a paedophile priest... Is everybody keeping fair, up? Fair so enough. Far? You, you got all that. You, you got all that out. But and it was incredibly complex and really, really rather confusing. But surely, what really happened there was there was a breakdown of trust uh, between Albert Reynolds and 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 Dick Spring. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's what happened. Which is ultimately what happens previously between Albert Reynolds. Albert and, Reynolds had a bit of a talent for this, and the uh, and the Progressive Democrats. Uh, coalition is that um, his partners in government can't trust him and Albert was an interesting character in his own uh, in his own right um, maybe uh, maybe himself the subject of another 38 part podcast series to be recorded in this studio but he was a quintessentially he was a deal maker and a risk taker he would describe himself in these uh, in these terms so just to be just to be clear here there is a crisis but in a way this is a crisis with an unprecedented outcome because the government is on the verge of collapsing and I think you know in most of the history of the state when such a thing was about to happen, it's almost certain that there will be a general election. Correct. But in this case, things turn out rather differently. They turn out differently. And and there's two phases to the way they turn out differently. So famously, Labour, there's the participants in, even though it had been subject of much external criticism, the participants in the Labour Fianna Fáil coalition at ministerial level not at leadership level, but at ministerial level, were convinced that this was the greatest government in the history of the state. Some participants in it still believe that, uh, uh, as a matter of fact. So they, what they are trying to do, and these are people like Brendan Howland, Rory Quinn, uh, Pat Magner on the Labour side, uh, and they are trying to, Charlie McCreevy, um, uh, Brian Cowan on the, uh, on the Fianna Fáil side, they are trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And the price for doing this is the head of Albert Reynolds. In a famous encounter when uh, Rory Quinn and a couple of other ministers, uh, Labour ministers, they come to talk to, I think, Noel Dempsey, uh, maybe, uh, maybe Brian Count, McCreevy, and they, uh, and they say to them, you know, we've come, uh, we've come for, for a head. It's, you know, Harry's or Albert's, doesn't matter to us. This is where you get the Sergio Leone music coming in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Godfather music, perhaps. Albert resigns. And Bertie becomes leader. Is there a contest? There is not. 
there is supposed to be a contest because Marie Maura Gagan Quinn was nominated at the time, but she says that she is not interested in standing. In fact, she didn't have the support. And Bertie had Bertie had support more or less sewn up a long time uh, out before that. He is the obvious leader at this stage. He's the Minister for Finance. There was talk of him running. And we're going to jump back now to 1992 when, two years previous to all this, when Charlie Hahi resigned. And the Hahi wing of, uh, of Fianna Fáil wants Bertie to run. Hahi himself wants Bertie to run because Hahi has been taken out by Albert Reynolds, who is head of the magnificently termed country and western wing uh, of, uh, of Fianna Fáil. And the Hahiites, it's made up of people like Ray Burke, Dermot Herm, uh, they, are, they want Hearn to be their standard bearer against the country and western gang. And they believe they can beat the country and western gang and therefore they will remain the faction in power rather than being all turfed out of their jobs, which is, of course, exactly what happens when Albert Reynolds wins. But Bertie decides at the last minute, he said, that he is not, he's, not going to, uh, he's not going to run. And the reason for that is one of the ways, really, in which this Ireland we're describing is very different from the Ireland we live in now. Yeah. So I think we should be wary of, you know, isolating single reasons for things to happen because that tends not to be the way in history uh, history and, and politics. And Bertie himself, in his own autobiography, explains, uh, you know, why he didn't run. He was, you know, uh, he was getting his, preparing to deliver his first budget. He was still relatively young. He'd only been uh, Minister for Finance for a number of months uh, at that stage. And he feels, according to his own autobiography, that he is not, uh, that he's, he's, he's just not ready. But there's another dynamic in play as well and that Bertie Hearn is separated from his wife Miriam uh, at this stage and supporters of Albert Reynolds begin to put this around a bit Uh, Michael Smith who is a supporter of uh, of Albert Reynolds in a TD for Tipperary North, gives an interview to the Tipperary Star. I think it was the Tipperary Star. Maybe it was the Nina Guardian. I think it was the Tipperary Star. And um, he says, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, Albert Reynolds is the envy of politicians because of, uh, you know, he's such a happy family life. The unspoken bit being, you know, Unlike, unlike the other fella mm. who is, uh, who separated from his wife. Nowadays, we think, you know, so what? But at the time, this is a big deal. So Bertie is separated from his wife. He is in another relationship with, uh, 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 with a woman called Celia Larkin, who's also uh, a Fianna Fáil activist in his constituency. And this was pretty, I suppose, by the standards of the, the time, if not Scandalous, then certainly unprecedented. And it would have, not just would for have a caused, senior leader. It would have caused nervousness, to put it mildly, among some of the faithful in the party. Oh, I think so. And would certainly have been the cause for comment among them. And Fianna Fáil is it's, it's quite a socially conservative party. It's probably the most socially conservative party in, uh, in, in, in the country uh, at this stage. In a country that is itself very socially conservative. In 1994, amongst the things uh, that you, 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 you didn't mention earlier on in your run through the year that was, in your reeling in the years segue er, uh, earlier on, was the fact that uh, homosexual activity between adult consenting males is only decriminalised in 1994. And because of pressure year. from Europe. Because of pressure from happened. Europe, but also because 
Labour is in government with Fianna Fáil and now insists on this type of thing. And Fianna Fáil, just as Mr. Morgan Quinn aforementioned, is uh, uh, is the woman who who brings it so, who brings it through. So the fact that Ahern is in another relationship is part of the dynamic that is swirling around this whole will he. Won't he? So, so that in, is why he does uh, not run in 1992 because he hasn't addressed this question in a way that he feels would satisfy his own party, or at least it it puts a sort of question mark against him. But in 1994, there's another. He does yeah, put himself there's forward. another. There's another. One more point that we should make about this point in 1992 that as part of this, you know, Albert is the envy of politicians for the felicity of his family life, which as a matter of um, uh, matter of fact, he was. His, uxorious, also, his uxoriousness, indeed, I think, is the word. Well, is it? Very nice, you. Uh, uh, one of the ways this is expressed, including by Albert, was that the people of the country might want to know where the Taoiseach is living. And this was also a direct dig at Bertie Ahern because he has not, at that stage, acquired the house that will in Trump Contra that will go on to be famous for all sorts of reasons. He is uh, he's living in part in his constituency office in St. Luke's at this uh, at this point. So by the time the leadership comes up again, and everybody knows Albert's not going to be there forever, and the leadership comes up in 94, by then Bertie Hearn, along with some friends of his, uh, has secured a residence. And that will be something that we will go on to talk about when this story uh, So Bertie has a home. In episode he, 37. he does become leader of Fianna Fáil and it looks as if the Fianna Fáil Labour arrangement will be patched up. The head has been delivered to the head of Albert I Reynolds. Yeah. Bertie is ready to become Taoiseach and then something dramatic happens. Exit Albert, enter Bertie as leader of Fianna Fáil November 1994. The deal is done with uh, with Labour, the government is going to be resuscitated, reformed with Bertie as Taoiseach. And then it hits a snag. There's an Irish Times story written by Geraldine Kennedy. It's late November uh, 1994. And it reports that Albert Reynolds had asked Harry Whelan to resign before he expressed confidence in him uh, in, an, in a dull debate. And more importantly, that Fianna Fáil ministers had known about another case involving the extradition of another paedophile priest, which in these days, paedophile priests were ten a penny. Uh, around the they place. certainly seem to be. This is called the, uh, the Duggan case. And Labour suddenly goes, hold on a minute, we can't trust these guys. Fergus Finley in his um, autobiography, or in his memoir uh, of the Fergus time. Fergus Finley, the kind of consigliere of the Labour Party at the time. Chief advisor to Dick Spring at the time, and a figure... Then and since hated by uh, Fianna Fallers for his uh, for his role in all this, he says something like, "We're never going to know where we are with these guys uh, to spring," and this story prompts a crisis of confidence in the New Deal uh, that Labour has done uh, that Labour has done uh, with with Fianna Fáil, and ultimately prompts Labour to pull out. Now, I always find the Labour explanation for this to be unconvincing. Because the paper, the Irish Times, had previously reported about this on a number of occasions over the previous week or 10 days. So in other words, this wasn't all that new. And when the Fianna Fáil ministers, when Labour guys go to them and they say, no, 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 the, the deal is off. The Fianna Fáil ministers are saying, hey, what, what are you talking about? Sure, you knew this. And so how, do they, how did Labour justify that in retrospect? They justified it by reference to the to the story. It wasn't terribly well interrogated 
uh, at the uh, at the time. The story was widely hailed, even though it had been kind of written before uh, in various guises on a number of occasions. So there is what has really changed. There is I think. an obvious alternative explanation, which I think you're just about to tell me, which is that the Dáil arithmetic has changed. There's been a couple of by-elections. And it is now possible in a way that it previously wasn't in 1992. It is possible for Fine Gael Labour and Democratic Left to command uh, a, a wafer-thin dull majority. And John Bruton has miraculously overcome, he's a Fine Gael leader, he has miraculously overcome his objection to Democratic Left being That additional uh, 18 government. months or so distance from the paramilitary past have, has proved sufficient? Uh, possibly the 18 months of sitting on his not inconsiderable tail end uh, on the opposition benches with his own party looking at his back and sharpening their knives might have had some implications in it as well. So can I just ask you though, for the, from Labour's perspective, does this tell us that and maybe we should distinguish between Dick Spring and Labour, that Labour always wanted to go into what would be seen in Irish politics as the natural coalition with Fine Gael and, and that when that became available, that's what they jumped for. Or does it tell us something deeper about how the Labour Fianna full coalition, which as we know was unprecedented, how that was working? Because obviously, as you said already, some people thought on both sides, thought it was the greatest coalition ever. So this is what true. was the dynamic driving that? However, people in every government think that they're the greatest government uh, of all time, it should be said. But what is true? is that Fianna Fáil Labour government, which lasted from 1992 to 1994, was during a period when the foundations for this huge economic boom are really being, uh, which we will talk about subsequently in the late 90s and 2000s, the foundations are really being um, uh, are really being strengthened for that. It is also the time, and if you, I mean, thinking about this time, I've always thought that up until, say, the 90s, there's two huge conspicuous failures of the Irish state. One was economically and the other is politically in uh, in the north. And this government is really getting to grips with both of those huge failures and is making very significant steps to turn them around. So there is an IRA ceasefire in 1994 because uh, the, the, the peace process or what we've become known as, uh, as the peace process and which has been being worked on secretly for a number of years before that is now beginning to, uh, is now beginning to gain momentum. And the, uh, and the, economic, the, uh, the Irish economy has, uh, has, never been, has never been stronger. So, so that government can lay claim to have been uh, a good government aside from the fact that its leaders couldn't get on and didn't uh, and didn't trust one another and there has always been now there is throughout this period i think there is a sort of thing bubbling below the surface in labor an antipathy to Fianna Fáil, uh a mistrust of uh, of of Fianna Fáil, and a sense that if labor is to really you know, lead a, semi, uh, a social democratic, be part of a social democratic government that Fine Gael is a better uh, home for. That has always been its... Yeah, that's, its that's, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that, but one is just that the, the shadow of Charles Hawhey still hangs over the party. There are other, other things will emerge about the, you know, behaviour within Fianna Fáil in the, in, in the years to come. There's, there's some justification for that. But just before we take a break, just to take a point, that this means 
that the prospect of the Taoiseach ship, not just the Taoiseach ship, but the Taoiseach ship at a, at a time of progress, of economic growth, of optimism for the first time in many years, is almost within Bertie Ahern's grasp and that it's whipped away. And then it is, there's early, in early morning phone calls, this is when Labour first, uh, or uh, Finfall first finds, uh, finds out about it. Bertie has called at some unearthly hour of the morning and told it's gone. And so instead of becoming Taoiseach, and I'm pretty sure he would have been the youngest ever Taoiseach uh, at that time, and uh, and looking forward to selecting a cabinet and with the you know the economic resources that uh, that is that is now behind him having possibilities that very few previous Irish governments, if any, uh, have had. This is all taken away from him. Bertie's left. Uh, Bertie and Fianna Fáil are left at the altar, and now he is leader of the opposition, not Taoiseach. And Fianna Fáil is plunged into this depression about losing power because, you know, Fianna Fáil above all at this stage has been, uh, uh, has been, you know, dedicated to the achievement and maintenance of power. Now there's a new government in, it is set fair for the uh, remnant of its, at least economically, for the remnant of its term. And Fianna Fáil is beginning to wonder, hang on, how long is this stint in opposition going to last? On that note, we'll take a break. We'll be back after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Pat, Bertie Ahern left at the altar, bereft, really, in a way. Maybe at this point we should stop for a moment and ask, who is Bertie Ahern and how did you get to this place in the first place? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have, we've, we've, we've committed uh, in, in the first part uh, of this episode, uh, you know, not to do the Bertie Ahern in swaddling clothes in Duncan in the 1950s. So we won't, we won't definitely do that. But just to say, you know, the politi- what's the political career of Bertie Ahern? His background is, you know, traditional Dublin, working class background. Parents were very Republican, traditional Republican Fianna Fáil supporters. He becomes a TD in 1977 uh, at a pretty young age, having been on the council before that. He is... Uh, um, he is. He becomes an assistant whip uh, in uh, um, in the government. Charles Howe becomes Taoiseach in 1979. Jack Lynch retires, and Howe, against the expectations of many, beats George Colley. Certainly within a certain part of the party, beats George Colley becomes uh, Taoiseach. Um, Bertie Hearn becomes is he's a deputy whip or an assistant whip, but the chief whip is ill for a lot of this time. So Bertie is effectively chief whip. So that's quite a big jump for a young for a young yes, politician. It yes, it is. But he's very good at it. He's very good at it, and he's beginning to be noticed. And uh, you know, just as they're uh, you know, just as people are talking about Hahi as the boss, you know, they're beginning to notice this young guy who is, you know, he, he's kind of vaguely kind of 
He's not a sharp-suited politician. No, he actually looks like he looks like a honest to god dub, doesn't he? he? He's very much the opposite scruffy. of how he, yeah, how, how he yeah. in his Charvet shirts and Indeed. his yes. equestrian tendencies and all those kinds of things. And Bertie Ahern has that kind of longer hair, and he's wandering around in his anorak. Always looks if, if his shirt isn't hanging out, it's about to be hanging out. Yeah, and and this is the time, of course, when being chief whip, you know, doesn't involve just administering uh, a WhatsApp group. You know, there's no mobile phones. You've got to get guys to turn up for votes. So you are, you know, literally sometimes you are going to the pubs around Leinster House. It's also a time when there's a lot more boozing going on everywhere, you know, in, in newspapers even, I, I, I understand, and, and certainly around Leinster House. So you are, he is pulling guys out of pub for votes and he is developing a sort of a network of of respect and goodwill amongst the parliamentary party where he is clearly seen as despite his young age he is somebody to be reckoned with and they're and not he, saying at is, this stage is he always a hahiite is he an out and out hahiite i think his loyalty to hahi at this stage is so he votes for him in 1979 but is it's also bound up in 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 self interest so hahi recognizes him uh, as both an asset to his uh, campaign, but also somebody that he can trust to do deals. And Bertie's great talent, even at this stage, is uh, is that he's increasingly seen as somebody who can cut a deal. He can somebody who he's somebody who can bring opposing sides together. He can, and this will and be a recurring theme throughout throughout his political career, even amongst his opponents in the party. And this is something he's very careful to do. He maintains good relations even with people with, that, that he disagrees with or with whom he disagrees in the uh, in in the party. And this is a time where you know there, there's. I mean, there's almost punch-ups at, uh, at parliamentary party meetings. The divisions in Fianna Fáil are bitter and acute, and it's right down through the party. This was, uh, you know, one of the features of the Hahi years. But even at this point, people who are on the opposite side to Ahern, they might not trust him, but they tend not to have him as an, an enemy or somebody that they, they really dislike. And this becomes very important for Ahern when he becomes leader in opposition because at that stage he has to unify the party. The, par- the splits in the party have at that stage kind of transmogrified into this Hahiites versus country and western uh, country and western ring. So when I or when, when Bertie becomes But, but just, leader, before you, just before you get to that one of the things that I've always found interesting that it seems to me tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong that he earns his spurs is obviously the you know the Hahis Fianna Fáil has its ups and downs through the 80s but then has a spell of power you know, uh, at the end of that decade and into the 90s and a huge problem in the country is industrial relations, partly because the economy is so shot in, in various kinds of ways. And Ahern brings those kinds of skills you're talking about to the table as Minister for Labour. And one of the underpinnings of the economic green shoots of recovery, which start to emerge at the end of the 80s and into the 90s, is uh, industrial uh, or an end to industrial unrest or at least a reduction of it. And he's definitely involved in that, isn't he? He's more than involved uh, in it. He's absolutely pivotal to it, not just to the actual hammering out of agreements between unions uh, and employers, though that's a significant part of his skill set. But more so, I think the big change in that, so High becomes 
High becomes Taoiseach uh, again after losing power in 82, becomes Taoiseach again in, in, uh, in 87, a uh, time of huge economic depression in the country, you know, hundreds of thousands of days lost, uh, lost to strikes. And uh, Hahi, Alan Dukes, who's the leader of, uh, of Fine Gael uh, at this stage, outlines something called the Tala strategy, which is that they would not necessarily oppose the government on every economic measure provided that they viewed it to be in the best interests uh, of uh, of the country. And this sort of approach enables what subsequently morphs into uh, what becomes social partnerships as national wage agreements. And part, the, the, these start off slowly, but they become to be a, a really important part of building the foundations for the economic development that we see come to fruition in the following decade. And, and, and one of the ways that they do this is that they end up kind of trading industrial peace for tax cuts. And so instead of getting, you know, huge increases in wages, which workers were looking for because the cost of living, you know, echoes today, cost of living is very high. We have, you know, this, the, the dreaded stagflation uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. And they identify something. They, 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 everybody agrees, everybody around the table, unions, employers, farmers, interest groups, they agree that there is something, there's something such as the national interest and that they can agree on elements of that together. And... If they get industrial peace, the IDA and so forth, Department of Finance are arguing that then, you know, that creates the that creates the conditions for much greater overseas investment here, but there has to be this guarantee of industrial peace. And the industrial peace then comes from the wage agreements that promise tax reductions in return for uh, industrial peace. There's also there's, there's small wage uh, improvements in the national national wage agreements. But Bertie Hearn is central to the operation of these. Because there's lots of snags along the way, but Bertie becomes the guy who can sort out the apparently intractable industrial relations dispute. And it's in one of these instances that Hahi famously gives um, the, uh, the, the the description when he describes him as the best, the most skillful. I should use my Hahi accent, shall oh, I? Oh, please do. <clears throat> He's the man. He's the guy. What did he say? He's the man. He's the best, the most skillful, the most devious, and the most cunning of them all. What do you think of that? Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll be looking we'll for more of that later. Any more where that came from. I um, mean, to, to be fair, when you look at this economic miracle created by Charles J. Hay and, and Bertie Hearn, I do raise a sceptical eyebrow sometimes, you know. And the, the, the fact is that Ireland is a small island uh, subject to the, the winds of, of the broader economic currents. And a lot of what was happening in the 1990s was as a result of other things, the globalisation, the collapse, you know, the end of the the end of the Warsaw Pact. The world was changing very fast to move towards greater unity among uh, European Union countries and big wads of European money, in fact, was a pretty significant part of that too. All, the, all these things uh, are part of it. But some of those things were true a couple of years earlier and the country remained mired in sort of an economic abyss, which is huge levels of emigration. But what is certainly true is that at the time, this is seen, this economic success is seen as closely intertwined with the political stability that the proto-partnership agreements are, the social partnership agreements are establishing. And Bertie Hearn is absolutely central uh, to that. All of which, again, goes to explain or lay out how bereft he must have been when 
the absolute prize, which as far as he was concerned, I've got to guess, he deserved uh, because of his work um, and the economic fruits, which he was set to to benefit from, are whipped away from him. And there he is, the leader of the opposition at the start of 1995. The bitterness in Fianna Fáil over, as they see it, being betrayed by Labour. And that alienation from Labour becomes important later on uh, in this story because one of the things that Bertie does, unlike any other Fianna Fáil leader before him, is that he is actively looking for for a coalition partner. He figures that, you know, if he is going to return to government, Bertie knows he's going to need a coalition partner. So he starts looking for the only available non-government coalition partner, which is the Progressive Democrats. And this whole period, I think this is one of the reasons why I find it so fascinating. This 94 to 97 uh, period is almost like a hinge for the direction that modern Ireland will take. It's a kind of a fork in the road. And Labour's treatment of Fianna Fáil, that is something that has huge consequences for the country over the following so following I, decade and a half because it pushes Fianna Fáil towards progressive Well, Democrats. indeed. And let me just ask you then about the progressive Democrats, uh, a party which doesn't exist anymore, but which had a major impact, uh, despite its relatively small size over the course of, of more than two decades. Does that mean then that Fianna Fáil essentially, in shorthand terms, switches or shifts to the right? Because the progressive Democrats are an economically and socially liberal party. They believe in lower taxes. They believe in giving business its head a bit more. They are essentially taking their cue from the political swing which had happened 10 years earlier in the United Kingdom and the United States. Let the market do its work. Yeah, I, I, think, they're, I think they're born of two things. One is the split in Fianna Fáil because he's nemesis, Desi O'Malley. And there's this, there's this fantastic, I'm sure you've, you might be able to see it on, on, um, on Reeling in the Years, where the Fianna Fáil headquarters were in Mount Street, Oris de Valera in, in Mount Street. And, and uh, there's a meeting of the national executive. Desi O'Malley is expelled uh, from the party for conduct unbecoming. And he comes out the door and all the press and TV cameras are there. And he's, his wife is with him. And he kisses his wife and he says, I hope that's not conduct unbecoming. <laughs> Right. God, we're getting Desi O'Malley impressions and everything. We, we, are, we, are, we are truly blessed. But ideology does matter, doesn't it? There is a huge ideological shift that happens over the course of the 1990s. It's one of the big things that happens. And it is both about social liberalism and economic liberalism, but just on the economic side at the moment, this question of tax cuts. Yes, well, this is the other thing. So the PDs are born of the split in Fianna Fáil. But this liberates O'Malley then to to strike out in a policy direction which was certainly novel in Ireland. PDs were prepared to do cuts in public services to pay for tax cuts. And so by the time we get to the period we're concentrating on, so the mid-90s, the PDs have been in government with the old enemy, uh, Charlie High. They've already delivered tax cuts and they are firmly identified with this sort of economic liberalism, social liberalism as well, but first and foremost, economic liberalism, a smaller state, less regulation on business, lower taxes and to, as you say, let the market do its thing. And Ahern has to do a number of things uh, while he's in opposition. One of them is, as we say, find uh, a coalition uh, coalition partner. And Charlie McCreevy, who is very much ideologically in tune with... Could could easily have been a member of the Progressive Democrats. But 
doesn't join the PDs. He subsequently said, you know, people, it's a great question about McCreevy. Why did you not uh, join the PDs? McCreevy's given various explanations of it, but the one, uh, the most compelling one to me is like, my mother would turn in her grave if I left, uh, if I left Fianna Fáil. And actually, as it happens, McCreevy goes on to be much more useful for the progressive Democrats because he uh, becomes Hahi's, or he becomes Bertie's finance spokesman and as we shall see, goes on to become... It is said of Fianna Fáil that because it is a party without ideology, it leaves itself very open to being pushed or manipulated in one direction or another by a party which has some kind of a coherent ideology if it goes into power with it and that we see this, we saw this with Labour, arguably, we might have seen it a little bit with the Greens at certain points and that that in in this period, we see it with the PDs. Sure, because Fianna Fáil is interested above all else in power and it is filling and and I suppose this is the luxury. When you are, and again to remind our younger listeners, Fianna Fáil is, you know, the thousand pound gorilla. In, uh, in Irish politics. It is never getting anything less than 40% in, uh, in general elections. It is in government most of the time for the previous, you know, 70, uh, 70 years or so since the foundation uh, of the start. And it is, so it is, you're right, it's, it's sitting in the middle and it can be centre-left or it can be centre-right. Bertie Ahern's very self-presentation is in many other countries. He looks like a social democratic politician. He, he looks talks like a, he, like a social he looks democratic. he looks like a trade unionist. There's all yeah. that, kind of, but he's he's equally able to move. Listen, if we're going to keep this to the the allotted forty-seven episodes, Pat, <laughs> we better just rattle through what actually happens between nineteen ninety-five and nineteen ninety-seven. There's a number of significant political events. It's not a it's not a time without, uh, no, without serious yep, political events. There's an awful lot going on. But like to look at it as we're trying to do from from Bertie's perspective. So he has to he basically has to pick the part up off the floor. So he, he brings in, you know, a whole new set of advisors. He names a new front bench, but his new front bench is very carefully balanced between the country and western Albert Reynolds wing and the Hahi wing. So McCreevy, who was identified with the country and western wing and had been brought into government by Albert Reynolds is the finance I'm sure somebody are wondering, what was the actual difference between the country and western wing and the, uh, and the Hahi wing? What was the difference? I mean, was it was it, purely, we, was it geography, uh, music in, preference? In, <laughs> uh, there was certainly no ideological division. It was a it was a factional division. There was the Hahiites and the not Hahiites, the Albert Reynolds guys and the guys who were not uh, with the not. Sorry, were not so we'll, guys. we'll have to get back you know, to what was, was actually happening. But yeah, I, I, it, it I, was pretty vicious. But let's 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 yeah, let's go on. So Bertie. Uh, Bertie has to pick the party up off the floor, as I say. All the good stuff that an opposition leader should be doing to build for the next election. But he also has to show the country that he is different, that he's not just uh, an old, uh, an old Hahiite. Uh, he does this in, uh, in, in a couple of ways, right? So there's a divorce referendum in 1995. Uh, needless to say, um, uh, that uh, divorce is illegal at this stage. Of in, course. Uh, in Ireland. There's a constitutional bar on divorce. And now remember, this is kind of a complicated situation for Bertie because not alone is he separated from his wife, living with another woman or in a relationship with, uh, with another woman. He is head of the most conservative party uh, in Ireland. Many and possibly most of whose members, uh, whatever about the voters, would have uh, opposed the repeal of the constitutional ban on divorce. So Bertie has decided that they have to vote uh, in favour of repealing the constitutional ban. And uh, But, you know, he's 
content for people to take a, uh, take whatever position uh, they want. There's a meeting, uh, there's a discussion at the Ordesh and a vote uh, and a vote is taken on it. And according to some people who were uh, who were there, the vote was overwhelmingly in favour of maintaining the constitutional ban on divorce. But there was a number of leadership guys in the room who make a lot of noise and the uh, the guy who's chairing goes, oh, no, that's fast and off we go. Ah, so so Bertie, democracy sends at work. That, Bertie sends that message to uh, to the public. So and, he supports... And, and we should mention it is passed by a very slim margin, but it, it is... is passed, the, the, the ban is repealed. It's passed by about 50,000 votes and the meteorological analysis being that if it had been raining in the east of the country as it was in the west... Uh, the western half of the country had it been uh, had the meteorological conditions been reversed that it wouldn't have passed but anyway who knows so there's also a couple of other very important developments that we should talk to before we come on to the actual 97 uh, general election campaign there's a distancing from Charles Hahi. This doesn't happen really until 1997. So Charlie Hahi had received, um, uh, we subsequently were subsequently informed by, via tribunals and uh, so forth that he's received an awful lot of money from businessmen. But at this, uh, uh, at this time, uh, the allegations he received over a million euros, for a million pounds as was from Ben Dunn supermarket, uh, the supermarket mogul. And this was flying around. It was under investigation by a tribunal of inquiry. And a hearn goes into an Ordesh, the Ordesh before the 97 general election. And he basically, Emily O'Reilly in the Sunday Business Post described it as throwing his former boss under, uh, under a bus. And he very publicly distances himself from Hahi. You know, he says, there's no place in our party for uh, for this type of behaviour. And he says something like, uh, you know, I, I believe this with every fibre of my being. In actual fact, this is what's going That's on. That's the worst accent you've done uh, so far. Right, I need, no. it, needs, it needs some work. Um, but, uh, uh, but what is going on in the background of that is that there is this desperate attempt on behalf of, you know, many of his advisors to get him to do this. But, Hearn, for reasons of loyalty to High, is hugely reluctant to do this. And one of the things that swings the argument in favour of Hearn delivering this denunciation, this public denunciation of High, is one of the ways in which Hearn modernises the party in this uh, in this time is he brings in these American political consultants, and they have done they're doing polling all the time, and uh, and and you know they're reading polls and focus groups, and they are saying. You know, if you don't do this, you don't get out of the you don't get out of the traps when it comes to an election. There's a whole bunch of people who might be open to voting for Bertie Ahern's new Fianna Fáil, but only if it's Bertie Ahern's new Fianna Fáil and not Charlie Hahi's old Fianna Fáil. So, so hence you've the divorce, got to demonstrate hence, them. Hence, throwing Hahi under the bus. Yes, these yeah. are things that no doubt Bertie believed it was the right thing to do, but they're also judgments as to what is best for him politically that he is uh, And how much making. of a challenge is it for him to win what will become the 1997 general election because this is you know the economy really is on the up at this point everybody is starting to feel the kind of the the, the winds of change there is a, a sense of optimism in the country and that's being surfed by this Finnegale Labour uh, democratic left coalition it seems generally to be doing okay but are there are there things that people are discontented with are there discontents that that Bertie O'Hearn's Fianna Fáil can tap into there's a couple of things right um there's and and, and one of them one of the most significant uh is uh, the country, of course, believes it was overtaxed. It always does. But crime is a huge issue in this. And this is largely because of the murder of Veronica Gearn, 
was a journalist for the Sunday Independent. And just as the country, you know, was becoming wealthier, then obviously crime was crime and gangland crime, dealing drugs, uh, etc., is is becoming more lucrative. And she's reported in very stark terms in the Sunday Independent. Anyway, so she is murdered uh, in a gangland hit in 1996. And it is a huge event in this period of, of, of modern Irish history. There's absolute public outrage and there's special powers acts are passed very quickly by the Dáil Criminal Assets Bureau is, uh, is set up. But it also feeds into this feeling, you know, that... Um, that they, the, the, the rainbow government, uh, as they were known, were not getting to grips with, uh, with, with crime. And Bertie and Fianna Fáil are talking a very hardline game on crime. And they come up with this idea, this before the Frank Aguirre thing, but they come up with this idea of zero tolerance, which was an idea... Rudy Giuliani. It came from in New York. Yeah, well, yeah. The idea was that uh, this sort of a broken windows theory, which is based in uh, in the sociological studies as well, is that if you showed zero tolerance for small infractions, dodging subway fares, running red lights, having a broken taillight in your car, whatever, that if you if the police showed zero tolerance on those things, that crime rates that that more serious crimes would fall as well. But again, isn't this uh, isn't this another case, and I think there's recurring ones of these, I mean, this is not just happening in Ireland. You know, Tony Blair will get elected for, and he'll say that he's tough on tough crime, crime, tough on the causes of crime. Bill Clinton made a real point of the fact that he wasn't like other Democrats in terms of how tough uh, for whatever word, he, he would be mm-hmm. in crime. So it's in the air, in the culture, in the, in the English-speaking countries in particular. This is, I suppose, what's happening to the country as a whole. It is opening a bit to the world. But what's the most important? What's, what's the sales pitch from Fianna Fáil in 1997 when the three-week campaign kicks off? The sales pitch is, uh, it's kind of young leader for young country. Very focused on, it's very focused on a hern. There's very important, clear and important messages on crime and on tax. So the rainbow, so... Rory Quinn, who's finance minister, Labour finance minister, first ever Labour finance minister in the Rainbow government. And he returns as minister for finance. He returns a surplus for the first time. In unheard the, of. Budgeting for a surplus for the first time in the history, uh, in the history of the state. Literally unheard of uh, before. So the Rainbow have this very strong advantage in that the government is quite popular. Most people think it's doing, uh, it's doing a good job. And, uh, and the economy is stronger than it has ever been. But as ever, people are feeling that they're not quite getting the benefit that they should from this uh, economic development. So the Rainbow are promising to reduce the tax burden through adjusting bans and, uh, and thresholds. Fianna Fáil says, we will cut the tax rates. And it's, it's just a lot simpler and easier to understand. So the campaign kicks off First thing to say about it, of course, is that Fianna Gael, as it always does, mistimed the calling of the uh, election. The election had to be held by November uh, of 1997. At Labour's insistence, John Bruton, Fianna Gael, Tisha calls it for June the 6th. Why was that wrong? Because had they waited, uh, as we will come to discover in episode 34, uh, had they waited, the tribunals would have uh, reported Ray Burke... Ray Burke, who was... Another very senior North Dublin uh, Fianna Fáil frontbencher. And part of the subsequent Fianna Fáil government would have had resigned over allegations of planned corruption. 
John Bruton calls the election. Bertie Hearn is out like a shot out of a gun. He does this very high octane election campaign where he's dashing around the country in helicopters and at uh, at high speeds. And he is, of course, I don't know what age he is at this stage. He's in his mid-40s. He's also brought back in PJ Mara, in, who is uh, the director of elections for, uh, for, for Fianna Fáil. And uh, Mara was a press secretary for Charles Haibs, a Fianna Fáil partisan to his core. The whole thing is a lot more slick. It's a lot more professional than previous Fianna Fáil campaigns um, have been. They are their election strategy. This is a really important preparation that he makes between 94 and 97, which we haven't touched on, but is really important and is part of that looking for transfers pitch is that they're the Fianna Fáil election tickets. Previously, the approach had been that basically, you know, all the local chieftains could run. So which often left... Fianna Fáil leaving seats behind because if you think about it, you know maybe it's a five seater. They're looking for three seats, but they might run uh, they might run four candidates. Whereas, um, whereas Bertie delegates this power to Mara chairs uh, 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 he chairs a committee that has Ray McSharry on it and Charlie McCreevy on it, and they are completely ruthless and they're driven by local polling. They're completely ruthless about their selection of tickets. So you know, typically four seater constituencies, they might go with with two candidates in a bid to win two seats rather than running three candidates and coming back with one. And they are completely ruthless about that. Now, there are longer term implications for the party from that. It means that the local TDs become more powerful and the Fianna Fáil organisation as such begins to wilt a little bit in subsequent years because the seats become almost the personal fiefdoms of the individuals. But that has yet to come. And as an electoral device and as a campaigning decision, it's Incredibly important because it means they are absolutely maximising. Uh, they're absolutely maximising their 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 vote. Can I ask you one thing about the campaign, which um, people who kind of read the history of the period or look back now and the way we commemorate this period might be surprised by? You know, the the, the peace process has been faltering, and the IRA cease first IRA ceasefire came to an end. There's a bit of a perception out there, perhaps with some justification, that Fianna Fáil are better at peace processing than Fine Gael and John Bruton are. And that may well prove to be the case, you know, that's for the historians to, to judge that. But that's not really a factor, is it, in how people vote in the 1997 general election? It is a factor, actually. And subsequent research uh, subsequently demonstrates uh, this, that the North was a plus for Fianna Fáil in that. So just for context, the IRA declares its first historic ceasefire in 94, but that breaks down in 96 over what the provost says, you know, a lack of, uh, lack of progress in becoming to, uh, yep. foot by the British. Uh, and uh, so there's a massive bomb in Canary Wharf in London in, uh, in 1996. That's the end of the ceasefire. But the provisional movement is still on a path towards politics. There's an effort on behalf of Fianna Fáil and Martin Manzer, who was uh, an advisor to Charles Hahi and becomes, goes on to become an advisor to, to Bertie. He's in touch with the Republican movement. He's been in touch with the Republican movement since Hahi was Taoiseach, but he is in touch with them and he's talking to them about a resuscitation of the ceasefire. But the Republicans are not willing to resuscitate the ceasefire until, uh, until such time, actually, as this change in government in Dublin but also in London, where it's they're, pretty they're, obvious they're by 1996 waiting, they're waiting the that they're going to wait for the new Labour, uh, mm. the new Labour government, the government, John Major's Tory government is going to fall. But there's a, Manzer uh, at, at one stage is in 
Belfast and he's walking down a street in Belfast. He's talking to Joe Cal, who was senior IRA leader at the time. And Cal says to him, I think we'll wait until next summer. But does that impact on voters in the Republic of Ireland? Do they do they feel the peace process is in better hands with Bertie Ahern? They do. It's hard to disaggregate that, but subsequent, uh, subsequent research would tend to suggest it was. And of course, John Bruton was his own worst enemy uh, on this. And there is, a, there is a big difference, I think, in the way Fianna Fáil are approaching the North, the way Bertie is approaching the North, and the way John Bruton uh, approached uh, the North. Bruton, I think, essentially saw himself as you know, that he could help be an honest broker between two warring factions uh, uh, in the North. And he famously, he was famously caught on camera referring to the fucking peace process when a reporter wanted to ask him about it. And it all fed into a sort of a notion that, you know, well, there's, always, there's always been a sense Fine, that, that Fine, Fine Gael have a much stronger antipathy to, um, to, 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 to Republicanism than, than, than Fianna Fáil. Yeah, and that was, that, uh. that, that was probably true. So I think, in, in a sense, it was authentic, whereas Bertie Hearn saw himself as, mm-hmm. he wanted to negotiate as the leader of nationalist Ireland. So let's get to the election. But before we do, there's a flurry, I mentioned media support earlier on, there's a flurry of interesting actions in the last few days before the, before the vote. Yeah, it's payback time. This is famous, um, <laughs> famous for people of our generation. So we talked about the um, we talked about the, you know, the, the the election being essentially as Dick Spring had described it in that first press conference up in the Shelburne Hotel, a centre right versus centre left, and Fianna Fáil are talking about Fianna Fáil and the PDs are about talking about cutting tax rates. It's immediately. Uh, understandable to people. The PDs over the course of this, PDs have a terrible general election campaign, by the way, because Mary Harney, um, the, in the PDs manifesto is that they'll, uh, they will reduce the size of the public service by 25,000. So immediately all these public servants are going, hold on, PDs are going to make 25,000 of us redundant. She makes and a comment about single mothers as well. She does make a comment about single mothers. They should stay at home with her, with her parents and not move out and go on benefits and so, uh, so forth. But the, the PDs have a disastrous, uh, election. Uh, campaign and Fianna Fáil are absolutely ap- going apoplectic with PDs over the course of the election campaign saying why are they home out making public servants the very public servants that we're promising pay rises and tax cuts to and uh, and have always been a core part of Fianna Fáil, uh, Fianna Fáil support but uh, PDs struggle over the line they have disappointing uh, they have disappointing result in the end, but they stay bound to Fianna Fáil for the for the duration of the campaign. And we should say, while well, while while independent newspapers supported Fianna Fáil, the Irish Times took a took a slightly different approach. Well, just goes to show the power of our newspaper. Okay, so in, the independent, famously the editorial, it's payback time. Uh, front page editorial two days before polling, the Irish Independent, then country's big biggest uh, selling newspaper advocates a vote for the Fianna Fáil PD coalition, uh, as I say, in a front page editorial. And uh, there is, this causes heart attacks all over the right-thinking, chattering classes who look to the Irish Times for their uh, for their political direction. And actually, this was, the, it was the source of much criticism in both the Irish Times and elsewhere, both before and after the vote actually takes place. Uh, but in actual fact, if you go back and look at the Irish Times editorial on the day of the election, that is coming after the election result, there was a fairly, not very thinly disguised recommendation for people to vote for the rainbow. They certainly 
recommended that people should vote. Is there anything wrong not, with this? Do, do, then not, newspapers not, often nothing recommend people how, how they should vote? Nothing whatsoever. They certainly re- the Irish Times certainly recommended a vote against the PDs. But um, I, well, I, I, I mentioned well, it. obviously that worked. I mentioned it purely I mentioned it purely because of all the pearl clutching that took place about uh, the indo edit. Well, there uh, was all sorts of talk about Tony O'Reilly's animus against the government because of various business interests and types of things. Tony O'Reilly, who was the proprietor of independent newspapers at the time. Uh, there was. And, and and of course, let us not forget that PJ Mara, who was director of elections for Fianna Fáil, was also an advisor to the independent group. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, it was a the sort of interesting, uh, an, an interesting footnote in the, the, the story of that election well, rather than... Well, you know, go, golden really circles are a recurring theme in this period. But but anyway, on to the election. Anyway, so the election, um, uh, the election takes place to say the 6th, 6th of June. Fianna Fáil, uh, Fianna Fáil wins 77 seats. The PDs win four seats. That's 81 together and 83 seats is a bare doll majority. Fine Gael had a good election, won nine seats, but Labour's vote, uh, Labour's vote plummets back to its historic average at about 10%. Why, why did Labour do so badly? There's always a bunch of reasons for these things. There was, I think, a sense among lots of people and their opponents bashed on in this that Labour had become arrogant in power and cast away one partner, took up with another, and people didn't like that. And it, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, sort of a hinge moment or a a fork in the road. What this 97 general election does is that it sets the course for Ireland at a time when we were about to undergo this extraordinary economic boom. So it gives, if Dick Spring characterises it as a choice between centre-right and centre-left, by a very small margin, Ireland chooses centre-right, but it chooses it for the next 10 or 12 or 15, uh, or 15 years. And, and it, it's, it's important to realise just how tight those margins were. So they, and the former Rainbow had, I think, 77 seats. Uh, Fianna Fáil had 81. It's still a minority government, so he's got to go and... Fianna Fáil with the PDs have one. So Fianna Fáil are on 77 with the PDs, PDs on four. Have four. They're so too they, shy of even a bare majority. Bare majority, so he goes looking for independent support and enter the era of the independents. Jackie Healy, Ray, Mildred Fox, Harry Blaney and Tom Gildee are the independents who support that Fianna Fáil government, their individual prices were all fantastically entertaining. And, and, you know, there was no, there was no secret backroom, there was no secret backroom dealing about this. They read into the Dáil record all the things they had been promised uh, for their, uh, for their support. And so in June, uh, in June of 1997, Bertie Hearn enters the Taoiseach's office and the next stage of our long story. And that, as they say, is a story for another day. And that's it from us for today, at least. Thanks to Pat and our producer, Declan Conan. We're going to be back very soon with the next instalment of our series when we're going to be looking at the first Bertie O'Hearn administration and at the early years of the Celtic Tiger. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.